On behalf of Yarra City Council and Yarra Libraries, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of this country, pay tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and give respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Short Story Club episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. The Short Story Club discusses one short story every meeting before moving on to their other reading recommendations. This week, Marcia and Nell will be discussing Kurt Vonnegut's recently rediscovered short story, The Drone King. Nell, would you like to tell us a little bit about the story? Yes, well, this is an early Kurt Vonnegut story that was published posthumously in 2017 by The Atlantic. And it is about a man in a gentleman's club, a wealthy man that has lost a lot of his money, that is thinks he's made this incredible discovery about bees and about how we can utilise the male drone bees so that they don't have to be kind of killed off and and murdered by the female bees. So Marcia, we both ran our sessions last week and I'd be really interested to hear what the reaction was like in your group to the story. Look, it was fairly it was fairly polarized. It's not an easy story to like. It's a great story to discuss though. I like to say it's like an onion. It's got layers. It is a story that can be taken in different ways. So we had people espousing totally separate, different, contrary views of the story. What about your group? How did they go? Yeah, the same. I had people that really didn't like it, really didn't like it. They they took it as kind of face value misogynistic and they were up to their ears, just felt like they'd been up to their ears in people talking about it being a woman's world. By, by the way, it was all women at, at my session and some of them just couldn't stand it. They hated it and some of it, some of them loved it. But I think the difference was the people that loved it or, or liked it and enjoyed it had read other Kurt Vonnegut. The people that hated it had not read, read much of his stuff before. I can see how that would make a difference. This was my first Kurt Vonnegut mm-hmm. and I have to say... I had a lot of trouble getting into it. I listened to it, I read it, and I just found it incredibly unappealing and very, very flat in a way. It didn't spark anything in me. And the only thing that changed my mind was because I knew I would have to lead a discussion about it, I looked for a way in that was a bit different. And there's a reference in the short story to the protagonist reading Morris Matalink's The Life of the Bee. And I thought, well, I'll go and have a look at that and see how that goes. Well, first of all, I loved Morris Matalink's The Life of the Bee. It was um, a beautiful piece of writing, but it really changed my understanding of the story. It gave me a way into the Vonnegut story that made the story make sense to me and also created in me a sense of sympathy for the protagonist that I have to say was completely lacking before that. Mm, yes. And so you would have read it a couple of times. I, I I always read it once when I find out what the story is and then I read it again before the session. And I always find that there are slight differences the second time I read it. So the second time I read it, I did feel that that 
character was quite sympathetic. I mean, he's a fool. Kurt Vonnegut's not saying – he's saying this person's not particularly intelligent, but he's kind of treated quite gently, I think, in terms of, you know, he talks about him being a gentleman and him, you know, helping out at the, the gentleman club's Christmas party and being Santa. And it was only that second time that I read it that I kind of got that sympathetic vibe. Did you, did you think he was portrayed sympathetically, this character? The first time round, no. No, I thought he was um, I thought he was a cartoonish figure, sort of epitomising a particular kind of almost Woodhouse kind of stereotype of an effete and fairly useless person who believed that life owed him a living. It was only in the context of the Matalink essay that – and then you start thinking, okay, look, look at the title of the, the story. It's called The Drone King. It should have been like up there in my head. Well, maybe that is the way you should look at the story, that Mr Quick's desire to save the drones is Mr Quick's desire to save himself. And that's where the sympathy came in for me. Yeah, absolutely. So – I loved it from the the get-go, but I read it coming from a feminist viewpoint, having read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut's work, knowing that he was very progressive and a real humanist. And so I read it as a kind of tongue-in-cheek poke at misogyny, whereas you read it as being anti-feminist. Is that correct? I still think there's a very, um, very strong anti-feminist vibe to it. I would never call it a piece of feminist writing. My my issue with it is that at the end of the day, Vonnegut is saying that nature can't be thwarted. So you can do as much as you can to, to save the drones, but nature has decreed their role in life and that can't be changed. And if you try and change it, your efforts are futile because what will happen as it's happened in the story, spoiler alert here, is that they will die anyhow. So I took that and then I looked at the context. It was written in 1952. It was at post-World War II. Let's get all the women out of the factories back into the home so that the men coming back from war will have their jobs back again. That whole a woman's place is in the home and a man's place is that hunter, collector, provider, head of the family type thing and that's what nature has said and the efforts of feminists to change that are doomed because they are going against nature. So I actually don't think that that was what he meant by the story but when someone says to me, is it feminist, I think, well, no, it's not because it's actually saying Nature has decreed your role in life. So if you were to read it as an anti-feminist story, Mr Quick would be, represent kind of feminism. Mr Quick would be, yeah, the woman on the soapbox saying equal rights for women. Yeah. Okay. So the way I read it was that I read it as completely tongue-in-cheek. You've got this misogynist man who's obviously had something terrible happen in his life, whether you know whether it was a bad marriage or something like that, and hates women and is basically looking for an outlet for his misogyny to be okay. And 
what else See, I, I, I find that really interesting. And this is what I meant about the story being so interesting to discuss because I didn't get that vibe from Mr. Quick at all. I don't think Mr. Quick had had a problem in his entire life until then. I think he was the drone. If you read the Morris Matalink story, it describes the drones as having this life of milk and honey, of living slothful lives and sort of like, you know, having total access to the honey whenever they liked it and not actually having to work at all. And then when nature decrees their role is over, then they're murdered or they're pushed out of the hive and they die. But up until that point, their lives are perfect. And I got the feeling with Mr. Quick that he'd had this perfect drone-like existence. He lived in the Millennial Club. All his needs were catered to. He had servants like that one who features in the story, listening to his every word and, you know, revering him. He had a protected, nurtured, beautiful environment. And the spur for him wasn't some past thing that had happened to him. It was him seeing the end of that life coming and then equating that end with what he'd read about the life of the bee, that the drones had this perfect life and then one day they were pushed out. And because the money that his father had left him, so he was in the club not because of his own efforts, he had inherited that role. The money that he had inherited was coming to an end and he could see his life like the drones coming to an end, the the end of plenty and the end of comfort. And he was fighting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it is so much about gender. So it's so much about gender in that, you know, he talks about a life where you don't have women with their moods and their this and that and the other and you're kind of safe from women and you're, it's only the, it is only the female uh, insects that eat, you know, like when he goes on about the, um, I can't remember the exact insects and the spiders, that will, the female spiders. That the will black eat widow. Yeah. <laughs> And the praying mantis, I think, came in for a cop yeah. too. Yeah, so he, there was the real. It was a real kind of fear of women in a way. And I think for me, as I was reading it, it was the gender side of things that really jumped out. It was very be, strong. It, that could be for me as a woman and as a feminist. You know, we've the best thing about Kurt Vonnegut is that he never really. I don't think there's an answer. And I think that there are always lots of different layers and it's about us reading it from our own experiences to take from it what we will. And so myself being a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut, I think I was telling you, Master, about this off off the air, about how I just fell madly in love with him as a person and a writer when I was reading his book, Man Without a Country. So back when I work in, worked in publishing, it was one of the books that I was doing like a publicity kind of campaign for, just like a small little campaign trying to get some radio presenters to review it and stuff like that. And so I read the book and it's this really slim little volume, very thin, beautiful little volume, and it's very full of heart. And it's just this beautiful book about an older, wise older person sharing really just kind of advice on how to live a good life. I know that music was a huge part of it and that in the first page he talked about how 
which is why I think I connected with him, him so strongly. In the first chapter, he talks about how as a young child and the youngest in, the, in his family, no one listens to you. So you've got to, got to, you've got to think of creative ways to be heard. And for me, I'm the youngest, in a, you know, in a big family and I'm six years younger than my closest sister. So sitting around the dinner table, I was just ignored, you know. And I, because of that, I don't think I learned how to speak authoritatively about things. So when I read this first chapter, I was like, oh, soulmates, you know, this Kurt Vonnegut guy that I've heard about, I just loved him, absolutely loved him and got this real humanist vibe from that book and then so went on to read a lot of his other stuff and in my mind and it could have been something that I built up in my mind that he was this kind of grandfather figure that was progressive and you know on the side of women and on the side of you know just humans and he's a pacifist and but I don't know whether that's completely true I don't know whether Kurt Vonnegut would ever identify himself as a feminist or whether that kind of informs or motivates his stories, but that's how I read it. You can't avoid gender in the book because it's all about people's, well, the, the club is men only, no women allowed. And the bees, the role of the bees is so sharply divided based purely on their gender. What's, what's interesting to me though, because you've got this depth of reading about Kurt Vonnegut, is would you see this story as a good introduction to his work? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did think – I've read a lot of his stories and a lot of them are quite hopeful and they're always very funny and, yeah, this one, I th- yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I don't think that if I had read this one in isolation, if I had opened the Atlantic magazine and just read this magazine, just this story, that I would have gone looking for anything else by him. I had to work quite hard. I had to read the Matterlink before I got to a point where I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. So I don't think I would at this point say, read this story and you'll understand Vonnegut. I feel like I need to go and read Vonnegut his later work. And the other thing too is Vonnegut became very successful as a writer. If he'd wanted to get this story published, I can't imagine he would have had any trouble at all finding a publisher for it. And I think it says something that he never got it published. He never said, oh, look, I've got a piece of writing here. I'll put it out into the world. So that makes me wonder how he related at the height of his writing to this early piece of work, which is why I wonder if it is really a fair lens through which to to look at him as a writer, which is why I was asking you because you've, you've read so much more. Well, I mean, I think that was Megan that when we first looked at this story, she said she kind of loved how absurd it is you know and a a lot of his stories are do have that kind of feel that they it's quite fantastical you know they're just these situations that would never ever happen and there's kind of like a an absurdity to them did you read two other Kurt Vonnegut short stories that you can find online that I believe are quite early as well there's the Barnhouse Effect which is his first one which is an anti-war story, and there's Miss Temptation. I read Miss Temptation. Yes, and what did you I think I loved Miss Temptation. If I had read Miss Temptation first, my, my, response, my response to Miss Temptation 
was very different. I thought Miss Temptation was, oh, I, I loved it. I, I loved it immediately. It was, yeah, maybe I relate more than I do to bees. Yes. It took, it took, look, that, I think that's probably what it was for me. To, to really appreciate the Drone King, I had to come to a feeling of sympathy for Mr. Quick. And I didn't feel anything in terms of sympathy for Mr. Quick. But when I read the Matalink story, I felt the sympathy for the drones and I transferred that to Mr. Quick. It's interesting, though, Matalink doesn't have that hatred of the female bee. If you read the essay, he's almost seeing the queen bee as a mu- as much caught up by nature and forced into this role mm, as, yeah. as the drones. Nobody the drones, is free. Marcy, in that essay, do the drones – are they murdered by the female bees or do they just die after trying to chase the queen? It's actually quite a striking murder. He said, the great idle drones asleep in unconscious groups on the mellifluous walls are rudely torn from their slumbers by an army of wrathful virgins. They wake in pious wonder. They cannot believe their eyes and their astonishment struggles through their sloth as a moonbeam through marshy water. They stare amazedly around them, convinced they must be victims of some mistake. And the mother idea of their life being first to assert itself in their dull brain, they take a step towards the vats of honey to seek comfort there. But ended for them are the days of May honey, the wine flower of lime trees and the fragrant ambrosia of thyme, because now they're going to be attacked and stung to death oh. by the by the worker bees. <laughs> it's, it's really... It's, it's it's a carnage. It's it's violent. It's I can understand if Mr. Quick was reading this and relating his own situation to that of the drones, he would be terrified. Because and is it based in fact? It's not a, yes, this was this is what happened to bees. It At is the what end to of their, their useful bit, the the bees, the drones have no other purpose. They are they are killed. Listen to this. This is each one is assailed by three or four envoys of justice, and these vigorously proceed to cut off their wings, saw through the petiole that connects the abdomen with the thorax, amputate the feverish antennae, and seek an opening between the rings of his cuirass through which to pass their sword. No defence is attempted by the enormous but unarmed creatures. They try to escape or oppose their meal mere bulk to the blows that rain down on them, forced onto their back with their relentless enemies clinging doggedly to them. They try turning from side to side. Uh, it's just, it's it's really full on. Yeah, it's violent. Um, it's, it's very, um, I, it's a great essay because he's, he's it's not scientific, but it, it is, I think, to the extent that I know bees, it is fairly accurate of what it happens. It is, okay. But he, he reads Google it. It's on Gutenberg. So if you look in Gutenberg, you'll find it. But it is it is graphic and it really does speak to Mr. Quick's state of mind that if he saw himself on the brink of being pushed out of the hive and being torn apart by what was waiting for him out there, he would be terrified. Mm. 
And then there's the um, the line about, you know, honey, 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 why is everyone so obsessed with honey and making honey and just because I can't make honey? Some of my short story club attendees thought that honey was money, was a metaphor for money. And I wasn't sure what to make of that. I was like, oh, sex or money, you know, honey, it's some, things that other people have that you don't have yourself kind of thing. Did you have any ideas about that? I can see that it would be money because the the purpose of the hive is all those worker bees devoting themselves to making honey in a mindless hive-like fashion and you equate that with that drive to make money in a capitalist society. I could see that happening. It, it, it wasn't something that struck me when I was reading it. I was far more interested in the relationship between the bees and Mr Quick. I also liked his name, Mr Quick, because the drones are described as slow and slothful. So I think, and Mr Quick, I think you said earlier on that he wasn't very smart. He was almost naive in his in his lack of smartness. But compared yeah. to a drone, he was he was fighting the good fight. He was gonna do his best. In <laughs> fact, the first time the first time I read it, I didn't think it was funny. But afterwards when I read it again, I found myself laughing out loud. Yeah. And the bits that made me laugh out loud tended to be Mr. Quick's naivety and the the gentle prompts of the now does he have a name? The stockbroker who's brought in by Mr. Quick to help him found his business, who who seems to serve the role of listener of the person to whom the narrator can direct all his conversation. His the gentle way he says, well, you know, using using the drones to deliver messages, well, that that might have been good if you'd done it before the telegram, but you you do know we've got mm. the telegram now. I thought yeah. that was hilarious. But it's interesting, isn't it? One of the people in my group, when she was talking about the club and the fact it was a man's world, said they, they wouldn't even have symbols of females in there. They wouldn't have flowers in there. And I was thinking about that afterwards and I thought, they've got 10 beehives on the roof of the building. They wouldn't want to have flowers. They'd be full yeah. of bees if they did. So the flowers, I yeah. Yeah. So... I said this, I thought the same thing, that possibly the flowers was about the bees. And also what I loved in terms of the gender stuff, right, was that we often talk about the fact that women are really good communicators and women talk about, we talk about our feelings and society allows us to talk about our feelings and encourages us to talk about our feelings a lot more than it encourages men to talk about their feelings, right? And, you know, and as a, as a wife and a mother of a little boy, I'm going to be really, that's something I'm going to be focusing on in terms of with Joss, with my baby, that he feels that he can discuss his emotions and talk about his emotions and that he never has to be too tough or brave to feel and to, you know, to have emotions in the, in the way that humans do. And so what I kind of loved about it, whether it was on purpose or not, was that the way that the drones were going to be saved by Mr Quick was through communication. So, yes. you know, that kind of idea that if men are going to save themselves, it's going to be through learning how to communicate better. Well, I'm not looking at it as sort of like a piece of satire and quite absurd. I think it's a story that's got a lot of heart. 
Yeah. Whether or not you agree with Mr. Quick's perspective, he is full of passion and he's full of emotion. His his crusade to save the drones mm. is driven by emotion. He's tremendously emotional. There's mm. no stiff upper lip about him. Yeah. He's all quivering. Yeah. I thought he was very sympathetic. Very sympathetic. He was. When you come at him from that point of view, I think if I met him in real life, I wouldn't have a lot of time for him. But no. um, And also he was quite absurd because he was all, I said naive before, childish, that yeah. that that conviction Absolutely. of a child who thinks if I do this, this will happen. Mm. And it doesn't matter how many times an adult says to them, yeah, it's not going to work, darling. Mm. The yeah. child doesn't want to yeah. hear that. He yeah. doesn't want to hear that it's not going to work because he's so fixed in his focus. And that was Mr. Quick. He was fixed in his focus. This this would save the drones, and by saving the drones, he would save himself. Mm. And then do you know what was very clever? I didn't know this, but what hath God wrought, which is the final line in the story, is apparently the first message that was ever sent by Morse code. Ah, that is clever, isn't it? Isn't that clever? But that's indicative because it's also, I think, for me, the theme of the story, which is you can't fight nature. So, again, it's working on multiple layers. It's a, this is Vonnegut. It's very hard to say this story is about X, Y, or Z because it's about everything. Yeah, absolutely. You, absolutely. So much of what you bring to the story is what you find in it. Absolutely. I wonder if I read it again in a couple of years, I'd find a completely different take on it. Or maybe if I go away and read Slaughterhouse-Five, which is – my my next planned read of Vonnegut, I come back to the story and think, oh yeah, I won't definitely know that. read some of him. I think, and especially because a lot of his stuff is sci-fi. You love sci-fi, don't you? I love science fiction. Yeah, but you know what? Which was very interesting. So I loved him in this book, this Man Without a Country, which I'd That's highly. That's what I would like to read. Yeah, a Man Without a Country. I think we do have it on our catalogue. He does come across as this kind of gentle, wise, you know, grandfather figure, whereas I did a little bit of a Google and then read this article about a book that came out that showed that in real life he was nothing like that. So he was really quite cruel and had a terrible temper, very moody, bouts of depression. And you'll see in some of the YouTube interviews with him, he's a pessimist and he really obviously does get bogged down probably by his experiences in the war. This is a man who survived the firebombing of Dresden by taking shelter in a meat locker in a slaughterhouse. I reckon he was carrying a lot. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. But, yeah, so it's interesting that from his writings he comes across as this person that you would just love to hang out with for 10 hours and talk about everything because you think he'd be so kind of kind but actually he was a very difficult person in real life which I thought was very interesting but I still love him. But I think sometimes that can be the difference between a person's inner soul where they want to be that can't get out through the outer shell that life has made. I've seen it in people before. I've seen it in people who it's almost like they put up a barrier between them and other people and behind that barrier there's there's a much softer kind of person but they can't expose that this this might be his only way of showing the softer side of himself 
Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to hard to judge someone I've never met. Absolutely. But Mr. Quick, I felt sorry for. So what else have you been reading this week now? Well, I'm getting to that age now. I turned 40 this year where I'm forgetting that I've read something. So I picked up Siri Husvet's The Summer Without Men because I was like, oh, that, that the cover kind of spoke to me. And it was only after a few pages in that I realised I've definitely read this before and it wasn't that long ago because the book only came out in 2011. So I've probably read it in the last five years. But that said, I loved it the first time and I absolutely loved it the second time. It was great. And it's a very slim little book, very easy to read, a lot of heart again. And I'm now actually, I'm not going to grab it today because I don't want to walk home with a big heavy book, but I saw that we've got a bunch of her essays, a book that is a collection of her essays, um, which I'm really, be really interested to read now that I've had a, a second read of The Summer Without Men. What about you, Marcia? What have you been in, enjoying and reading recently? I am getting ready to read Network Effect by Martha Wells. It's the fifth in her Murderbot series, but it's the first time she's read written, I should say, a full-length novel. The other ones have been novellas. And I wanted to get my brain in the right space, so I've been rereading the first of the novellas. And it's interesting because coming just after our discussion of the drone, which is like the idea of science fiction writers and gender, you could really say that gender and science fiction are both themes of all systems read the first murderbot book but it's nothing like it it's nothing not, like it but yeah. so nothing like the drinking yeah. nothing like the short story no 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 you, if you would like to start science fiction and you don't read it generally and we're talking science fiction with spaceships here murderbot is a great way in the first book is called all systems read by martha wells and i completely recommended it's such a gorgeous book to read and what you said about being slight and easy to read it is it's slight and easy to read but it doesn't mean it's not a great read oh i haven't read any good science fiction in such a long time what's it about Uh, it's about a, a cybernetic organism so the main character calls itself murderbot but It looks like it has a face. It looks like a person because they've married robotics with organic features. So people going on scientific explorations to other planets might hire some of these murderbot creations as as guards and they regard them in the same way as they would regard um, a piece of equipment. And the murderbot likes that because the murderbot lives in fear or someone saying to it, tell me how you feel. Yes. <laughs> the murderbot does not want anyone to engage with it. It's very, very busy. It's hacked its own governor, so it's totally independent, but no one knows, and downloaded about 7,000 hours of soap opera. Oh. <laughs> So, so when people think, oh, the murderbot's on guard, the murderbot's actually watching soaps. So it's funny. So it's it's funny. Humorous. Yes, it is very. It 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 is. It's not. It's not. Um, 
a comedy, but it is very humorous. That was Nell and Marcia discussing Kurt Vonnegut's The Drone King. We hope you enjoyed it. Keen to discuss these stories with us? We currently run meetings of the Short Story Club on every second Wednesday, with one session at 12pm and another at 6.30pm. We have stories from Elizabeth Harrower, Raymond Carver and Celestine coming up. And you can register for these via the Yarra Library's website. If you're still to read The Drone King, or if you'd like to revisit it, you can find the whole story published on the Atlantic Magazine's website. And if Marcia's comment on Maurice Maeterlinck's The Life of the Bee sparked your interest, you can find that one on Project Gutenberg. A reminder, our doors may be closed right now, but online the library is always open. Call or email us during business hours to find out how you can access your usual services online. Happy reading! Happy reading!